Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that flips through the pages of history to deliver old news in a new way. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're talking about one of the most influential writers of the mid-20th century, the man who stuffed a whole wide world of fantasy into the back of a wardrobe. The day was November 29, 1898. British literary scholar and children's book author C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, Ireland. Among his many claims to fame, Lewis was an esteemed literature professor at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, not to mention a poet, a theologian, and of course, the best friend, or maybe frenemy, of J.R.R. Tolkien. That said, C.S. Lewis is perhaps best known as author of the Chronicles of Narnia book series which to date has sold more than 100 million copies, including translations in over 30 different languages. According to a national PBS poll in 2018, the Narnia series also ranks as the ninth most beloved novel in America, just behind Little Women at number 8 and Lord of the Rings at number 5. Clive Staples Lewis was born in Belfast to Albert James Lewis and Florence Augusta Lewis. His father was a solicitor, so a kind of lawyer, and his mother worked from home, looking after Clive and his older brother, Warren. Both parents were well-educated, with Florence Lewis having graduated from the Royal University of Ireland 
at a time when very few women were earning college degrees. The couple passed their love of learning on to their children, both of whom became avid readers at an early age. C.S. Lewis seemed especially eager to learn, and one of the first things he found out was that he'd been given the wrong name. One fateful day, back when he was a toddler, Lewis insisted that his family call him Jack, or Jaxy, and for the rest of his life, they did just that. His older brother Warren later recalled that fateful day, saying, quote, In the course of one holiday, my brother made the momentous decision to change his name, Disliking Clive and feeling his various baby names to be beneath his dignity, he marched up to my mother, put a forefinger on his chest, and announced, He is Jaxie. He stuck to this next day, and thereafter, refusing to answer to any other name. So to his intimate friends, he was Jack for life. C.S. or Jack Lewis was precocious in other ways, too. He learned how to read when he was just three years old, and began writing his own stories by age five. As you might expect, he mostly wrote fantasy stories, and they were largely inspired by his own favorite books. For example, Beatrix Potter was publishing her Peter Rabbit stories at the time, and the Lewis boys couldn't get enough of them. Pretty soon, the brothers were making up their own stories about talking animals who dressed in clothing and lived in a fantasy land called Boxen. C.S. Lewis started writing down those playtime stories, and some of them were actually published years later in a collection called Boxen, the Imaginary World of the Young C.S. Lewis. Tragically, Lewis's mother died of cancer when he was only 10 years old. Not long after, he joined his brother at a boarding school in England, and although he excelled in his studies, he was often bullied because of his strong Irish accent. When the First World War broke out, Lewis joined the British Army and fought in the infantry in France. After being wounded by shrapnel, he was sent back to England, where he chose to live as a surrogate son with Janie Moore, the mother of a friend of his and fellow soldier, who was killed in combat. During this time, Lewis began to focus more and more on his writing, but he wasn't working on novels or spiritual treatises just yet. Instead, at the age of 20, Lewis was writing poetry. In fact, the first book he ever published was a collection of poems assembled from his teenage years. It was called Spirits in Bondage and was released under the pen name Clive Hamilton, another made-up name. And while Spirits in Bondage is a perfect title for a book of angsty teenage poetry, the public didn't go for it, and only a handful of copies were sold. The same was true for his second volume of poetry, which also failed to find an audience. Those early setbacks left a bad taste in Lewis's mouth, and he rarely wrote poetry from then on. Luckily for him, he hadn't hitched all his hopes for the future on his success as a poet. After his time in the war, Lewis began attending Oxford on scholarship. He graduated a few years later with two degrees, and became an English tutor at the school in 1925. He kept his position at Oxford all the way until 1954, at which point he became a professor of medieval and renaissance English at Cambridge, where he stayed until 1963. A resume that impressive can be a bit intimidating, but by all accounts, Lewis didn't take himself too seriously. For example, his favorite outfit was an old tweed coat, a pair of baggy flannel pants, and a beat-up felt hat that he always wore around campus. 
According to one report, Lewis once lost that hat while on a picnic, only to find it months later under a bush with a family of field mice living inside it. And since it was his favorite hat, he put it on anyway. In fact, Warren Lewis wrote about that story as well, and it's worth sharing. He said, quote, Jack once took a guest for an early morning walk on the Magdalen College grounds after a very wet night. Presently, the guest brought his attention to a curious lump of cloth hanging on a bush. That looks like my hat, said Jack. Then, joyfully, it is my hat. And clapping the sodden mass on his head, he continued his walk. Lewis's home life was a bit more exciting than you might expect as well. Remember the friend's mom he was looking after, Janie Moore? Well, there were persistent rumors that she and Lewis were actually lovers, and Moore's daughter, Maureen, later alluded to the same. Biographers have since speculated that Lewis eventually broke off the affair as he became more serious about Christianity, though he would continue to provide for Moore and her daughter for the rest of their lives. Lewis's home life became even more complicated once his brother Warren moved in with him. Warren had become an alcoholic after his time in the British Army, supposedly drinking as much as three bottles of whiskey a day, according to Lewis's secretary. It all made for a decidedly unstable household, but amazingly, that's the background against which Lewis wrote his most celebrated works, including the Narnia series. Of course, none of that drama was public knowledge at the time, as Lewis valued his privacy and was rather shy in his everyday encounters. He never spoke in detail about his personal life or his emotions, even to his close friends and colleagues. That's not to say he was standoffish, though. He just always thought there was something more interesting to talk about than himself. As one of his friends at Cambridge put it, quote, Lewis was too shy to be seen to want to be known, and too modest to think that anybody would want to know him. We've covered a good deal about Lewis's life so far, but there's one crucial aspect we've barely touched on, and that's his spiritual faith. But to talk about that, we also need to discuss the other fantasy-writing elephant in the room, the Lord of the Rings himself, Mr. J.R.R. Tolkien. The two authors first met in 1926 at a gathering for the Oxford English Department. Tolkien was a tutor there as well but they really didn't become close friends until the early 1930s. Around that time, Lewis and Tolkien joined a literary discussion group at Oxford called The Inklings. As members, they gathered once or twice a week in university offices or at a local pub called The Eagle and Child, where they held informal meetings and workshopped each other's writing. At those informal get-togethers, Inkling members would sit in leather armchairs in front of a crackling fire while drinking brandy and smoking cigars, and they'd talk on and on about story ideas and whatever else for hours on end. It all sounds pretty on-brand for a bunch of nerdy British professors, and it was in that somewhat cliché setting that Lewis and Tolkien got to know each other, quickly bonding over a mutual love of fantasy and myth. They didn't see eye to eye on everything, though, and one of the biggest points of contention between them were their differing views on God and religion. Tolkien was a devout Roman Catholic, but Lewis, who had been raised Irish Protestant, actually became an atheist in his teens and remained one during his early career at Oxford. That's bizarre to think about if you're at all familiar with Lewis's writing. Much of it is rooted in spirituality, and nearly all of it is filtered through a Christian lens. 
to the point it's hard to imagine that the same guy spent decades of his life as an atheist. To be fair though, by most accounts he wasn't a very resolute atheist. In fact, it might be more fair to say he was agnostic and not really sure what he believed. Lewis later wrote about having a deep spiritual longing that he could never quite square with his own disbelief. He later referred to it as, quote, the God-sized hole in his life. And strangely enough, it was a conversation with Tolkien that finally set him on a path toward filling that void. In 1931, Lewis and Tolkien went on a long walk with a fellow inkling named Henry Victor Dyson. Lewis had been struggling to make sense of his spirituality for quite a while at that point, and during the course of their walk, the three men began to talk about the relationship between God and myth. Specifically, Tolkien expressed his belief that ancient stories, things like folklore and mythology, were actually ways to articulate higher truths about the nature of reality. He said that's how he viewed Christianity as well. It was a myth, but a true one. To Tolkien, the message of Christianity was the truth about the world, and all the other myths and fables and ancient stories and religions out there were also attempts to express that same truth. Something about that viewpoint struck a chord in C.S. Lewis, so much so that within two weeks of that conversation, and probably a few more in between, Lewis declared his return to Christianity. And not only did their talk rekindle Lewis's faith, it also inspired not one, but two of the greatest fantasy series ever written, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. All that talk of myth-making had the authors itching to pen their own stories, the earliest drafts of which they presented to their fellow Inklings over the next several years. Thankfully, the other members of the club were nearly as into fantasy writing as Lewis and Tolkien. It probably helped that they were all well-read writers themselves who shared a love of classic fantasy stories, like Beowulf and the tales of King Arthur. However, their experiences in World War I likely made them more open to the fantasy genre as well. Rather than focusing on the surface-level ugliness of the world at large, the authors chose to invent new fantasy worlds where they could explore a broader, less pessimistic view of life. And again, it goes back to that idea of there being some deeper truth or significance to the world, one that we're able to experience and engage with through storytelling. Tolkien and Lewis both believe that. It's one of the reasons why their books remain so compelling to such a wide range of people. And it's also a big reason why the two men became such close friends. They shared a similar view of the world, and of how writing and myths could help make sense of that world. Still, despite all they had in common, Tolkien and Lewis had a falling out during the late 1940s and 50s while they were working on their respective fantasy series. Apparently, Tolkien was a stickler for clarity and precision, and he felt Lewis's Narnia books lacked those qualities. In fact, Tolkien once said that the series suffered from, quote, incoherent mythology, which must have been quite a blow to a fellow myth lover like Lewis. There were also personal disputes that drove a wedge between the two authors. For example, Tolkien felt that Lewis had developed anti-Catholic views, which he took personal offense to, and he also didn't approve of a romance that Lewis later struck up with an American divorcee. Still, the men never lost touch completely, and in public, they continued to praise and support one another's work, 
right up until Lewis's death in the early 1960s. In the end, they both probably cared about the other a lot more than they let on. Lastly, before we go, I want to go to bat a little for Lewis's incoherent mythology. I actually think that's a crucial part of the Narnia series' appeal, and why it still continues to capture the minds of readers from all different beliefs and backgrounds. People label it as a simple Christian allegory, but it's so much more interesting than that. The world of Narnia borrows bits from Greek and Roman mythology, Norse mythology, Germanic folklore, medieval romance, European fairy tales, even Santa Claus shows up at one point. It's a real kitchen sink approach to world building, but somehow it works. I can't speak for C.S. Lewis the theologian, but C.S. Lewis the artist clearly knew that if you want to communicate something true to the most people possible, then your best bet is to weave it into a story that feels universal. And, you know, throwing in a talking lion never hurt either. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.